go ahead and get started. Well, people will trickle in as they trickle in. Too many good treats. Yeah, good fellowship with the snacks today. Everyone's enjoying the rain. No one's complaining at all, right? Not nope. praying for months for rain. All right, let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. Thank you for the truth that you've shown us, and thank you for your Holy Spirit that is guiding us now to learn more about you and your word and how we can love you and serve you. Guide us in these moments, we pray. Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a, a couple of weeks since we've had a chance to meet, so I thought, well, rather than just pick up exactly where we left off, let's go back and review a little bit of what we would have seen in the book of Galatians. We had a congregational meeting in the meantime, and then there was a week where I was gone, so um, we did start talking a little bit, and we were in a different room, <laughs> different circumstances, different people, so everything was different last time. But the last time we began to talk about the message of the book of Galatians and how Paul is dealing with a church that is relatively new and is being affected by the Judaizers, these folks that say, well, Jesus is good, but it's not enough to come to Jesus. You've got to go all the way back to Moses. And you have to follow the law, and you have to be circumcised, and you have to do the feasts, and you have to do all these things. And he is amazed that they've already so quickly abandoned the gospel. And so he has to write this letter to correct them. And I mentioned in the service this morning that we're going to celebrate the Reformation next week. And you might say, well, why do we celebrate the Reformation? Because we need to remember the gospel. The gospel is under threat in every generation. And it's under threat with different types of false teachings. And so we have to constantly remind ourselves, what is the gospel? What is it that we believe? What, is, More importantly, what is it that Christ has actually revealed and done and what actually saves us? We've got gospels galore going across our land today. We've got gospels of people who say that uh, you're enough. Well, if we're enough, why do we need Jesus? We've got gospels across the land. I saw one teacher who said God promised him he would live to be 120 years old. Okay, I'm not sure what that actually does to accomplish gospel ministry, but it's a gross misuse of scripture. And by the way, this is a guy that he's a so-called prophet on television with a net worth of over $3 billion, and he's still having a fundraiser. Okay, so a plague on his house. We have gospels that want to add, like Jesus plus. Jesus good plus. You know, they'll prescribe a certain behavior pattern that we have to go through or things that we must do or not do. And they confuse the gospel and the implication of the gospel. They have gospels where people want to add another descriptive phrase to the gospel, like the social gospel. The gospel is the gospel. The gospel is not in need of any descriptive phrase from our political discourse. The gospel may have social implications, and it does. The gospel may have political implications, and it does. The gospel may have relational implications, and it does. But it's the gospel. Or social justice, or other things that we want to add. It's like, don't confuse root and fruit. 
And so we have to continually get back to what is the gospel. And so next week we will emphasize that, that, that men literally gave their lives and died so that we would have a copy of God's Word in our hands, so that we would understand what the gospel is, with the expectation that we would continue to preach it clearly. And so we'll celebrate the Reformation next week because we are all children of the Reformation in one way or the other. You remember when we talked about the book of Romans, we talked about the impact that it had on Luther, the impact that it had on the Wesley brothers, the impact that it had on Augustine. Okay? And that we're all children of these men, spiritually speaking. Well, that's the gospel. These men that discovered or rediscovered the truth of the gospel. And so Paul is dealing with this threat back in the first century where immediately these Jews want to come in, Judaizers, and they want to impose extra conditions on the gospel, on Christians. They want to put them back under the law. And not just the moral law, because we are under the moral law. They want to put them back under the ceremonial law. They want to put them back under the sacrificial law. And yet Christ is our sacrifice. So we don't need more sacrifices. So he has to write this letter. He says, it has come from me as an apostle. And he'll make an explanation. It didn't, it didn't come because I learned from this guy or learned from this group. It was given to me as a direct revelation of God. And we know that he had a life-changing encounter with Christ. Right? In the road to Damascus. That he was blinded, physically blinded for three days. And I believe that that was the first time in his life that he actually saw the truth. While he was in a state of physical blindness, he saw the truth of how all things come together in Christ and what the gospel is, and then he spent the rest of his life dispensing what he had learned. So Paul wrote it. I believe that um, he wrote it to the South Galatians, not the North Galatians. The difference would be this. If he wrote it to South Galatia, uh, you know, I have just a couple of copies. I did make more copies, I'm sorry, of the notes, because I forgot. So did someone else do you have a copy of the notes? Yeah? Okay. Um, I forgot to make more copies of the notes. I apologize. I'll try to have them ready for next week. The difference would be, did Paul write this as a very early letter in his apostolic ministry, or did he write it later? Did he write it to the group of people that would be on his first missionary journey in South Galatia, or did he write it to another group of people in North Galatia? All of this is modern-day Turkey. And Christians have had their discussions about North or South, which way would it go? And I have included some of that in your notes. Uh, what would be the evidence for the North Galatian theory and the South Galatian theory? But just for brevity's sake, I believe he wrote it to the South, which means it's an earlier book. And I believe that this was actually the first letter that Paul wrote that is in our Bibles. Doesn't mean he didn't write letters before that. Doesn't mean he didn't write letters afterwards. But the first epistle of Paul that we have in our Bibles, I believe, is the letter to the Galatians. Came very early on. And here's some of the arguments that I would And I don't know how well you can see the picture up there. You can see some arrows. So he starts off on the east in Antioch. And you can follow the, the light blue as he goes to Cyprus. He goes across Cyprus. He goes up into Asia Minor. And these are the cities, Derby and... Uh, uh, what is that? I can't even see them all either. But... 
the ones that he went to that are mentioned in his first missionary journey in the book of Acts. He went to those cities and then he traced it back and ended up in Antioch. And all his missionary journeys, he started in Antioch and would end up in Antioch, sometimes passing through Jerusalem. That all seems to fit best. And I put some of those arguments in your notes uh, as far as uh, the South Palatian theory. It has to do with his history. It has to do with geography. Um, if, in fact, he wrote to the north, number three says we have no important record. We don't know when he got there. When we study the missionary records of Paul, he generally traveled on the main trade routes, going from city to city, but there were no trade routes in the north until the late third century. So I think Paul wrote this book early on, fitting with his visit that he made to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 11. And so I'm assuming around the mid to upper 40s as the first book. So that would make then the second book of the New Testament. James, the letter of the half-brother of Jesus, that would be the earliest recorded New Testament book that we have. And then the letter to the Galatians would be the second one. Now, how much is gained or lost, depending on whether it's north or south? Nothing. The only thing that is just we have to reorganize a little bit what we understand about Paul's life and what he did on missionary journeys one, two, and three, when he took them, and what the relationship is with the book of Galatians, the book to the Galatians, and the book of Acts. Paul mentions a couple of visits, and we try to make everything fit together with the book of Acts, because that seems to be the most comprehensive presentation of his life and his journeys. Okay? That's a lot of academic stuff. It doesn't affect at all how you understand the book of Galatians. But if you have a Bible study, or study Bible, with notes in the bottom, they may draw reference to whether it was the north or the south. And so now you have somewhat discussion that's going on. Brothers of goodwill support one theory and support the other. So this does not separate believers from non-believers. It just is a disagreement that believers have about the dating of a book, not about the content of the book. Okay? So, have a friendly discussion over it, and then get to the main meaning of the text. Now, the reason, another reason why I give, you can see where Antioch is, where he started out in the red, going to these different cities to uh, Perga, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and then coming back around Cyprus, back to Antioch. The reason why I think that we could date it as an early book written to what we might call South Galatia is because in 49 AD, some would say 50, there was a very important church council that is mentioned in Acts chapter 15. And as I said last time, in Acts chapter 15, which was the first council of the church, they're getting together to decide what do we do with these Gentiles that are becoming believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we force them to follow all the laws that we have, with the sacrifices and commitments and everything? In other words, do we force them to become Jews, practicing like ethnic Jews? Or do we recognize that the gospel is all of grace? And we emphasize those things that can unite Jews and Gentiles in Christ without necessarily eliminating the cultural distinctives between them. And in Acts chapter 15, the church decided that Gentiles do not have 
to become Jews. They don't have to become practicing Jews with circumcision, the feasts, the sacrifices, the temple, all those different things, that they have the fullness which is in Christ. But all of these things point to Christ. And James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, was the leader of that council. Peter was one of the leaders of that council. And in 49 AD, maybe in the early 50 AD, that's what the church decided. This is how Jews and Gentiles can fellowship together. This is how they can meet together to uh, emphasize their unity in Christ. And Paul does not refer to that council in the letter to the Galatians. It was the perfect example for him to use had he wanted to do so. That's why I go for an earlier date to Galatians. He was struggling with that issue, and as we read through the book of Acts, these opponents of the gospel followed Paul wherever he went. You ever notice that? They go from city to city following Paul. Judaizers say, okay, well now that some of you are following Jesus, that's not enough. You guys start following the law. And Paul would have to look back and say, no, you guys are getting in the way of the gospel. Paul would have had the trump card, the ultimate trump card, with the Council of Jerusalem in 49 or 50 AD by saying, the church has already decided. And he doesn't refer to it in the book of Galatians. He just presents the argument. So I think historically that's one of the best arguments for an early view of the book of Galatians, written sometime before 49 AD, after he'd been a believer for about a dozen years or more, after he'd finished his first missionary journey, after the, the, these churches are starting to already walk away from the faith less than 18 months after he had practically, it seems like anyway, after he had planted the church there. Okay? So... Paul is amazed that they are uh, uh, separating from the gospel. And he needs to write and say, stand firm in the gospel. And so we have a general storyline how he does it. So when we look at the book of Galatians, it's broken down into approximately three arguments. Each of approximately two chapters long. So after he gives his initial greetings, which he does in most of his letters, in chapters 1 and 2, he says, look, God gave it to me. Where did I get the gospel? I got it from God himself, direct revelation. He talks about how he is an apostle, had been set apart, and had received this message. And so he's counteracting these Judaizers that want to add to the gospel. And he's saying, no, you can't add anything to what God has already revealed to me in Christ. So it takes approximately two chapters. Get to chapters 3 and 4, and now he's going to say, because this is true, stay away from these things. Don't add on anything to Christ. Don't try to add on anything to the gospel. And he uses examples that they would have used from Abraham, from Ishmael, from Isaac, to show that Gentiles in Christ are the true sons of Abraham. That those who believe in Christ, Jew, Gentile, whatever, they are the true sons of Abraham. Not those who want to add on this and this and this and this and this. And actually, in a very clever way, turns the argument on its head against these Jewish opponents that he had. These Judaizers who wanted to add things. And then in chapters 5 and 6, he's saying, okay, because it came from God... And it separates all of this stuff from what is the true gospel. Here's how you live it out. 
And so for two chapters, then, he's talking about how we walk in grace, how we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, how we live in harmony with one another, how we overcome divisions. And so he has moved, in a sense, from the theological foundation, the historical foundation, the theological argument, now to very practical living. One thing we can say about Paul is Paul doesn't just give us stuff to know. He doesn't just fill our heads with information. He always circles back and says, because this is true, this is what you do. Because God is a living God and these things are accurate and true, this is now how you will live as a consequence. Okay? And so, I love how this, this Jewish apostle who is brilliant with probably the equivalent of more than one PhD, understood the biblical languages, understood theology, also understood that it matters what we believe because it affects how we live. And that what we live and what we say all go together and should not be in contradiction with one another. Okay? So that's kind of the basic argument of the book of Galatians and kind of the layout. Let me pause there for a minute. Any questions on that? This is the, the book of Galatians. You know, uh, we have the privilege here at, at EFC of, of preaching through books of the Bible. One of the first things that I need to do as I'm praying through is, how am I going to separate this out? How am I going to divide this up so that we get into portions that we can handle and we can see how it works together? And Galatians, the book of Galatians, is a very difficult book to do that in. Paul is jumping from different categories and different issues and... This, this would make a potential preaching outline, but boy, you look at it, you get a little overwhelmed, right? It doesn't break down as neatly as some of the other books. Why? Because Paul writes early on, he says, I am amazed, I'm astonished, he said, that you are so quickly abandoning the gospel. This was not a letter that he took his time to sit down and ponder over, jot down a few notes, and then form an outline, and then develop it further, probably like he did with the book of Romans. No, he's, he's ripping this thing off to get out to him and say, I can't believe it. You guys are already walking away. And so there's a lot more just intensity and passion as he writes uh, this letter, which is why it is not quite as clearly, crisply divided up like we might see other books. And it shows Paul's human. In some books he writes, we see his humanity coming through in full color. And here he is of seven Galatians. Chapter 3 says, you fools. Okay? Now, in the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, I'm pretty sure that's not one of the methods for gaining friends. Write a letter and call everybody fools. Okay? But he loves them so much that he wants them to see the danger of what they're doing. You foolish relation. And the word he uses, who has bewitched you? Who has cast you under a spell that you're running after this false gospel? Okay? There is pastoral passion as he shares this letter with these people. Okay? So what are some of the major themes? And this is, I think, where we left off last time for those that were not with us. Kind of, um, kind of had to rush through. Yeah. Now, for those of you that have been here regularly, you know I like to get to a point. Okay. If all we know are the main themes of the book, what are they? Because that's what we need to know so we understand the basic message of the book. The first one, as you see it, Paul says, this message came from God. It's not something I made up. Um, 
My ministry is from the Lord. I'm not trying to be a man pleaser. I don't want people to have to follow after other things that are man originated. It came from God. Now when he says that, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Galatians 1. We need to understand what he is saying, and I think what he's not saying. In Galatians 1.1, he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He's making it very clear there was not a group of men that got together and sent me out. He's making very clear this was not a message that he got from men, it came from God. That is very clear. He wants them to understand that he's not just some uh, teacher that happens to come down the road like a lot of them did in that day. He actually was sent by God himself. And I don't think he is saying, I never learned anything from anyone else. Okay? Because later in that same chapter, he says in verse 17, I went up to Jerusalem. Uh, when God was pleased to reveal his son to me, verse 16, in order that I might preach among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem with those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned later to Damascus. In fact, he probably spent up to three years in Arabia. Could be longer, could be shorter. But what are you doing? What, what has just happened to Paul in his conversion experience? He's persecuting church. Right? He's killing Christians. He's done a pretty good job of in Jerusalem. In fact, somewhat so that he says, okay, now I need to go elsewhere. He's going to Damascus. God strikes him, reveals himself to him. He's now converted to Christ. Three days he's in blindness. He immediately goes off to preach the gospel. And I think it's at this point that he went to Arabia. Yeah? What um, area is that Arabia now? Jordan. Jordan. Yeah. Jordan. Parts of northern Saudi Arabia, most of Jordan, would be Arabia today. Some would even put it in southern Syria. Okay, so you kind of get that whole area. And he spent, I spent three years there. Why did he do that? I think he has to sort out his theology. Yeah? Wasn't it for him to, to do what you're saying? Yes. And to study and learn what God wants Yes. To so, if you want to put it in practical terms, you went to seminary for three years in the yeah. Okay? Which was fun for me because I taught him on Jordan that far from what Paul would have been. I said, look, we're just doing what the Apostle Paul says. We're just here studying the Word of God in Arabia so that we can be prepared for ministry. But think of the brilliance. He knew the languages. He knew the theology. He knew what the Jews taught. He said, I went higher than anyone else. But when God revealed himself to me, I was in need of a doctrinal correction. And so now he went back to this time of study. What does the law say? What do the prophets say? What, who was this Messiah? How does all this fit together? And in that time of preparation then, he was able to launch into ministry that would empower him for the next 30 years of his life until he was one. Okay? Yeah. Um, did he have an apostle with him at that time? Was there another believer that could kind of we don't know. mentor him? We don't know. There's this okay. great discussion about that. Yeah. Um, he... He says that he did go to Jerusalem, but later on he said, I did go to Jerusalem. So chapter 2, verse 9. Um, he says, okay, I'm sorry. I'm gonna, before I get to that, I'm going to do verse 18. Then after three years, 
I went to Jerusalem. So he's in Arabia, he's in the desert, he's at seminary, he's going, he goes to Jerusalem, and he remains in the 15 days, that's his biblical way, say two weeks. Okay? I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. So he did interact with other apostles at times, but he's very, it's very clear to see that they're not the ones that gave you the authority. They recognized that we're on equal authority, and they gave each other the right hand of fellowship. He did interact with Peter and James and John, but he didn't say, I'm, I'm inferior to this. He says, no, we recognize that we all met the risen Christ, and that we were apostles. Okay? And in chapter 2, verse 9, he even says, when James and, and Cephas, Simon and John, who seemed to be pillars, received the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, and we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Okay? Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was used to do. So, he's establishing, look, whatever you've heard from the apostles, I have that for you. Whatever message they have, I have. I'm just doing it among the Gentiles. You're doing it among the Jews. Okay? So he's making that point. First two chapters. Look, my ministry came from God, just like these other apostles. And the reason why he has to emphasize that is when we get down to verse 12. For before certain men came from James... He, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself during the circumcision party. So what's going on? These Judaizers claiming to come from James, who was the leader in Jerusalem, are saying, oh, no, 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 no. But Paul told you it was good, but we've told you the rest of the story. You need to go back to Moses. You need to practice separation. You need to practice purification laws. You need to practice all these things, okay? So he starts out by saying, I have the same apostolic authority as Peter, James, and John, and all these other ones. The Galatians are claiming somebody came from James and is bringing in this new teaching so that even Peter himself was led astray. And then Peter is led astray, and Barnabas is led astray. See what false teaching does. Okay? And Paul stands firm and says, no. And I would have loved to have been there when this happened. Verse 14, chapter 2. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truths of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So imagine this. Okay? Peter is a recognized spiritual leader of the church. But even Peter needs the counsel of fellow apostles to stay on the straight and narrow. Peter comes and has a great influence in the wrong direction. And so here comes Paul, one apostle, confronting Peter, another apostle, publicly. Now, who would pay for inside tickets for that? Right? And this would be quite the, the throwdown, right? But Paul recognizes that the gospel is the gospel is the gospel must be defended. And there are men today that are trying to bring in different teachings and wanting to add things to the gospel and it sounds really good and we can get swept up in it and we need men to step into the breach and say, no. The gospel cannot have anything added to it. And so next week then we will affirm the five solas of the Reformation. 
we, under the authority of Scripture alone, we affirm that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And we're going to explain why each one of those things is critical. And Paul would be, as he's sitting from his vantage point of the author of Galatians and Romans, would be saying, Amen and Amen. Because that was what his ministry was all about. Seeing that those things were, were from the Lord and we need to keep them. Okay? So did, uh, I did a lot of twists and turns in that little dialogue there. Did you, did you catch where I was going with it when you look at it in Galatians? What was happening? Okay? He's standing up and saying, my message came from God and the gospel is unique. Okay? He recognizes that he was fighting against God. Going one way, God said, I got another plan. God got his direction, changed, his heart changed, his message changed, and after he spent his time in seminary in the wilderness, he went out and preached the rest of his life. Okay? The gospel is unique. Those first two things go together, but then the importance of godly leadership. We see it. You know, uh, I really like Peter. The reason why I like Peter is I see a lot of Peter in myself. I get really excited about something, but not always the right one. I can shoot my mouth off when I should have taken more time to think. I can make bold pretensions and say, oh, I'm going to do this and this, when I haven't spent enough time with the Lord saying of what I want you to do that and the other. Okay? So I can relate to Peter, and I'm glad that I have the example of Peter, because what did Peter do? He fell down a lot. But each time he got up and went back to Jesus. Okay? I could do that, because I really know how to fall down. So what I really need to work on is getting back up and going to Jesus. Okay? And so I appreciate the example of Peter. Um, but Peter was wrong here. And Paul called him out. But then the interesting thing is, we don't see Peter fighting with him. So Peter accepted the rebuke. How do I know that? Because Peter continued his ministry. And then later on, Peter would write two epistles that are just passionately full of gospel truth. And he died in Mark's death. Okay? So it shows us along the way the importance of good leadership. But good leaders, even when they fall, I should say when they fall, because all good leaders will fall at some point. But good leaders are willing to listen to correction, do a course correction, or behavior correction, or whatever. Yes? I'm just thinking that today, I don't know that we're so gracious with people that fall and fall and fall again. I'm thinking that it's not that gracious. I think you're right. Probably because we've added something to the gospel, right? Expectation, well, if you're the gospel, you're perfect. Really? <laughs> You're right. You're right. So I, I appreciate Peter and the fact that he was a leader and he was bold and he did die a martyr's death. And I appreciate Peter that even when he fell, he got back up and went back to Jesus. And we can learn from that. And we can follow that example. Okay? But we also see we appreciate Paul, who was willing to be, if you, if you can follow the reference, he was willing to be the prophet Nathan and stand up to Peter and say, Thou art the man. You're wrong. We just don't like talking like that today. We don't like to hear words. No, you can't tell somebody's wrong. He might be speaking his truth. <laughs> I hear this from our leaders in Washington. 
somebody will come and testify. And it's just, it's just the, it's the theological equivalent of both Okay? And they say, well, she was just sharing the truth. That ain't truth. It's just garbage. You see how what, we have to stand in the truth? This is why we need organizations like Together for the Gospel. Okay? The Gospel Coalition, 3G, Master Seminary, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, these schools that will train men to stand firm on the Gospel because the threat of compromise is Okay? Then we have the interesting story of what's going on between the promise given to Abraham. And this would have been a real kicker. We can't really go into it in full detail, but just turn to Galatians chapter 3. So, he starts off chapter 3. Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Okay, you can feel his passion. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. The word here is actually placard, or we might say um, billboard. Maybe driving down the road, see a billboard, and it's displaying it. That's the word that's behind this. I portrayed before you, I billboarded, as it were, Jesus Christ crucified. I explained who Christ was, what he did, and how it came about in such a degree that you could almost visualize it in your mind so you would never see it. But let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Because the Judaizers want to bring them back to the law. See, you've got to do this and this and this and this to stay in good cahoots of God. And the Gospel says, if you're in Christ, you're in good cahoots of God. So, did it come by faith or did it come by works? Having begun by the Spirit, are you not being perfected by the flesh? That verse right there is still the temptation we have in the church today. We start out with Jesus. We start out okay, but then, okay, Jesus, thank you. I'll take it from you. And we're going to do our own thing in our own way, in our own traditions, in our own rituals, in our own creeds, whatever it is. And we want to continue on in the flesh. Started in the Spirit, it has to continue in the Spirit. Okay? So who are the sons of Abraham? Well, verse 9, So then all who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So we're the sons and daughters of Abraham who are in Christ. So that means that promise that God gave Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 is true for us and of us. That we are blessed in the seed of Abraham who the ultimate seed is Christ. Now, that does not exclude promises that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It just shows how it is fulfilled in Christ. So we don't downplay one ethnic group to play up another. We exalt Christ and invite all to come and gather under the shadow of his feet. Okay? <clears throat> and we are the sons of Abraham. I don't know that we emphasize that enough, but I remember when I was getting ready to go to uh, Jordan the first time. We were getting ready to leave. The church class I was in was actually studying the book of Galatians. And we got to the end of uh, Galatians chapter 4 where there's this example between Hagar and 
Sarah. In the end of chapter chapter 4, verse 30 says, But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. And somebody at the table said, Well, boy, good luck going to try to preach that message in Jordan. Because they were thinking on a purely physical level and Paul's taking it to a spiritual level. And I said, If I preach it correctly... This will be good news to the people of Jordan. Because they will see in Christ that they are the true sons of Abraham. Paul flips the argument on his head to where he actually calls the Judaizers Hagar. And he calls the Gentile believers Isaac. Sons of the promise. He flips the argument. And so we are the sons of Abraham through the line of the promise today. We're slave, we are children of the free womb. We are children of Sarah, spiritually speaking, because we have heard the promises of God and we have believed it through the ultimate seed who is Christ. Paul's not talking about ethnicity here. He's talking about two ways of living. Those who want to live according to the law and those who want to live according to the spirit. Okay? It's a deep argument. Okay, and it would be better if we got a flow chart to show how it all switched and everything. But that's why you have your study Bibles and your commentary, so you can look at it in more detail. Okay? But here's what you need to know. Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 4 that all of us are children of Sarah, children of the promise of the true seed of Abraham. And that's why we can sing our silly songs about our Father Abraham and many sons, and how we can recognize that in Christ all the fulfillment of the promises come, and we're in Christ. Remember, we're talking about the gospel here. He's defending the gospel, the good news that would be a blessing to all nations. Okay? It's not all that can be said about all these ethnic groups, but we're talking about the gospel. And then as we live out the gospel, how many think it's hard to live out the Christian faith in a sinful world? I want you to tell, I want to say it's not only hard, it's impossible. Okay? It's impossible. And we're not to try to do it in the power of the flesh. We're to do it in the power of the Spirit. Recognizing that there will be a, always the continuous trend to, to want to go with the ways of man, the ways of sinful man. That's the ways of the flesh. Instead of going the ways of God and the Spirit doing things according to the power of the Spirit. Don't try. Galatians 3 says, don't try to live out the Christian life in your own power. Live it out in the power of the Spirit. Okay? And when we sin, which we do many times every day, confess your sins and move on. Don't try to justify it. Don't try to explain it away. Don't try to deny it. Because it only gets worse. Just confess it and move on. The grace is lavish in Christ. That's the reason why I came. To lavish His love upon us. So that when we sin, Grace rushes in when we confess our sins. He says, walk in my power. Walk with me. Abide with me, he says in John 15. That's what it means to walk in the Spirit. Abiding in Christ. So that we understand and that we need to make decisions. Yes, we use our minds. Yes, we use our strength. But we do that because he's working in us. His strength and power. And then that fruit. So if you look at Galatians 5. From 19 to 21, you have what the world looks like outside of Christ. 
This is what sinners do. This is the way of the world. This is the way of the flesh. All these sexual sins, anger, addiction issues, drunkenness, all these things. Okay? We don't have to spend a lot of time on that. But 20, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit. Now, this is a singular term here. The fruit of the Spirit. Sometimes we're tempted to say the fruits of the Spirit. But here it's the fruit. And the fruit of the Spirit manifests itself. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's what the Spirit produces in us as we walk with Christ. But there's also things, and this is, we also strive after them to be more loving, to be more joyful, to be more hopeful. But we do that because God's truth is given to us and God's power is working in us. Yes? Um, is this the... Okay, so I've heard it kind of explained before that as you grow in this, as your relationship goes longer in the spirit or develops in the spirit, they're actually like sequential fruits of the spirit. Like your first fruit that's visible is love and then it grows like the, uh, like develops. Like you still have the love, but then it develops more as you, is that, have you heard that before? I'm not sure that's what Paul's trying to say here. Okay. Now, I think, you know, sometimes people want to prioritize. I saw one speaker say, well, love is the first one, and then he calls it love, joy, love, peace, love, patience. I'm not sure Paul's even trying to do that. I think he's saying this is what the life looks like of a man and woman controlled by Christ. And that each of these things, there's nine of them here, love, joy, peace, always self-control. And that the manifestations of that fruit, we should be growing in each one of them. Now, will we grow evenly in all of them? Probably not. Uh, based on our spiritual gifting, based on our experience with the Lord, based on our understanding of Scripture, based on our willingness to obey, based on our personality. Some people are going to manifest some of that more readily than others as they're working with the Spirit of God. Right? But all of these things we should be seeing... Even if it's a nascent form initially, we should see it in a growing manner. Not perfect. Remember, Christ is the perfect one. And at the end of the day, we still only want to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But we want Christ to be displayed in us more and more so that it's all grace. And I, I like to put it this way. Um, if we are in a relationship with a good friend, maybe a brother or sister in the Lord, if we're in a good relationship with our spouse, What's the one thing we desire in all of those relationships? To get to know them more. To grow deeper in commitment and love and joy and peace and service and all these things, right? But we're talking about the living God here. Should we not enjoy God even more than we enjoy the deepest of human relationships? Okay? That's what he's talking about here. Enjoy the journey, in other words, Paul, what he said. Enjoy the journey with God as the Spirit works in you and as you point people to Christ and as you give thanks to God the Father. So we think in a mechanical sense, I've got to do this to get this. I've got to get this to do this. And Paul's talking about relationship. Don't start with the works. Start with the Spirit. Walk, the Spirit is a person. Walk with Him. Let Him work in your life. And you're going to see these things produce more and more. But it's that battle. Daily battle. When we wake up in the morning, the battle begins. As soon as our eyeballs pop open, the battle begins. The temptations to start, oh God, 
I'm going to get all the sins today. I've got to rush off to this. I've got to meet with this person. I've got to do this. Right then the battle starts to say, okay, Lord, this is the day you've given me. Your spirit is within me. Lead me today. Surrender all this to you. And include him and invite him into everything. And you find that. I'm not saying the deal will go easy. I'm saying the fellowship will be rich. Okay? Yes. A question about confession. Yeah. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins one to another. Catholics have people confessing to the priest. Right. Is it enough to confess to God, or do you have to confess to another person? Well, okay, so let's talk about in, in an ultimate salvific sense, salvation, we confess our sins to God. Right? Because Christ is our high priest. So we go to God through Christ, right? Says so no man comes to the Father but through me. That's always true. He's our high priest. So we confess our sins to him, and as our high priest, he mediates for us and we receive forgiveness in him. Okay? On a practical sense. Um, I think it is actually important for us to have people with whom and to whom we can confess sin and weakness. I'm not saying our exhaustive list. Okay? Do that with God. But in the way God has made us, there are times that we actually need to unburden our hearts to a fellow image bearer, a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ. Say, I'm struggling with this. Would you pray for me and need help? And hear the proclamation of forgiveness that comes from the Word of God. So, I have been in church services where there was a, uh, a moment, let's confess our sins to the Lord. And then there's usually some type of declaration of forgiveness based on the grace of God. I find that very helpful pastorally. And in my own, in my own soul to hear that. So I don't think I would go around as a regular, you know, sit down and say, hey, Joe, how you doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm a wretch. I'm a liar. I'm a liar. <laughs> I, I think, but in our relationships, we should get to the point where we can say, brother, pray for me. I'm an angry man. Brother, pray for me. I'm an impatient man. Brother, pray for me. Whatever it might be. Um, because then what we do is we journey together and invite and encourage. And it's, God uses other believers as vessels of encouragement. But use it with discretion. But there doesn't need to be this formal thing. I was 18 years of Catholic, so I know exactly what you're talking about. There doesn't need to be this formal thing where I go into a booth and recite some creeds and recite my sin and go off in dependence and stuff like that. No, that's not what James means. But a very good question, very practical, right? Because what we desire as image bearers of God is intimacy with other image bearers. Right? So that grace can be invited in. But oftentimes we're really proud and not want to let anybody see that actually we're, we're kind of messed up and we don't have it all together. Because our culture says image is everything. Show everybody that you have it all together. Well, if we have it all together, then Christ died for nothing. But the gospel clearly says we, the reason we're so messed up is we're messed up. <laughs> we're sinners and we need a redeemer. Okay? The last one then is using Christian freedom responsibly. So um, Paul was committed to the law before his conversion, but he realized keeping the law will not save him. After he has his life-changing encounter with Christ, he recognizes now the true, the true role of the law, which was to lead him to Christ teach them about Christ. 
and to help him now live out the moral requirements that God has. You might say the Ten Commandments, don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery, whatever. That, that moral law that we do need to live out now because we do live according to the moral law of God now. Because now we have the Holy Spirit living in us and now we can live out the moral law. And that's what Paul says in Galatians 5 and 6. Um, but we might think, well, I'm free. I'm free. We can so overemphasize the fact that we are in free in Christ that there's nothing we can add to our salvation that we might forget that salvation just does not end at justification, which is a declaration that we are not guilty, that we are righteous in God's sight. The gospel always leads to sanctification, which is becoming, in our actual practice, what we are declared to be in our position. And the gospel includes glorification, where we will be perfected one day in practice and in our character. Okay? So the gospel that justifies us also is the same gospel that sanctifies us and so we need to be growing in holiness to display the glories of the gospel so we're not free to do whatever we want to do we are now purchased and under new ownership you know I was, the other day I was looking at uh, finding a new um, looking to get a new battery for my wife's computer and flip the computer over to see, you know, where it was made, what the model number was, what battery I needed for that particular model, okay? Well, if you take our heart and you flip it over, it says, made in heaven, right? Owned by God. New model, right? Expiration date never, right? Okay? But we belong to Him. The imprint of Him is on us now. So now we want to show and live out that we belong to Him. And so we use our freedom responsibly. So Paul says, don't use your freedom to do whatever you want. And the, the paradox of the gospel, use your freedom to serve others. So we are free to serve. Serve God and serve others. Not free to serve ourselves. He warns us against doing that. So now, if I could just follow up on your question, chapter 6 says, uh, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of God. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And then verse 5 says, bear his own load. So which is it? Bear one another's burdens or bear his own load? Which one is it? Yes. Right? No, it's carry out the responsibilities that we have. Bear your own load. But then there are certain things that are just too much for one person to bear alone, and he needs the fellowship of the brethren to come around him to help him bear that burden. You see that? They're both. I'm not saved just so that I can enjoy my salvation in the Lord. I have been saved and redeemed and placed in the midst of a people that are his redeemed people, and now I'm free to serve them as the Spirit empowers me. Okay? And that's the challenge. Because every day, and not only is that battle against the flesh beginning, the battle is against my own selfishness. It just says, seek not your own desires, but seek the desires and needs of others above your own. Okay? So the book of Galatians is transformational, if we will let it be. It's very practical. It's a passionate letter that Paul writes in his church of rebels. Which means it's for us today, right? Because there's still a bunch of rebels in our 
that need this reminder of living in community to overcome the sins in our own hearts. So, what are some of the unique things then as we get close to wrapping up? What are some of the unique things of this? What did this stop again? Okay. In Galatians, remember each book we say there's unique things that God has given us in that book that we would be missing if we didn't have that book. So, Galatians, we have Paul's clear testimony of how he met Christ. And what would we be missing if we didn't have his own public testimony of how he received Christ, how he encountered Christ? In Galatians, we have an example of how spiritual leadership can confront one another to protect the integrity of the gospel and the unity of the Bible. We would be missing that if we didn't have Galatians. We wouldn't know that Peter and Paul had this falling out over the gospel and then also get glimpses where they were reconciled and continued to serve. In Galatians, we have warnings against divine judgment against false gospels. Paul's not messing around. When he says, if somebody brings a false gospel, let him be accursed. He's literally saying, let him go to hell. We didn't feel the weight of that. It's not just a wrong doctrine, it's a deadly doctrine with eternal consequences. Okay? Only in Galatians do we have this allegory of Sarah and Hagar that Gentiles, because he's writing to a Gentile audience, those who believe are the true children of Abraham, as are Jews who believe who are the true children of Abraham. Okay? Keep in mind, his target audience is what these Gentiles that have received the gospel. Um, and then we have other things that are unique and true about this book. Think of what we'd be missing if we didn't have the book of Galatians. There are things that we just would not understand or we'd be missing if we didn't have the book of Galatians. Now God, in His infinite wisdom, has saw fit to give us these 27 books of equal, unequal length, of unequal density, of different authors, different life stations, and somehow they fit together in a beautiful mosaic. And we needed to understand not only the 27, but to understand the previous 39 in the Old Testament. This was hard to pick the key verses. <laughs> you saw how hard it was to divide the chapter up. So what would be the key verses? Well, in my estimation, it would be the fact that in the gospel, Galatians 3, 22 to 29, the gospel unites into one that which the flesh tries to use to divide. So the law came to point us to Christ, and as the law points us to Christ, all who are in Christ, male, female, Jew, Gentile, free, slave, we are all heirs together in Jesus Christ, inheritors of the promise. That's good news for us today. Now we saw this a little bit in the sermon this morning of Ruth and Naomi, coming from very different life stations, united in the true path. Paul illuminates that a little more in the book of Galatians. And then this ongoing battle of living out our salvation. Okay? So, some of this is a little bit arbitrary. What are the key verses? But I'm convinced that if you at least understand what is said in these two passages, you will grasp clearly what Paul is trying to say to the churches in the area of Galatia who were fighting against the false gospel. Okay? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, 522 talks about 
fruit of the Spirit, and then it gives a list of individual things. Right. Is it wrong to call each one a fruit of the Spirit so that together they're fruits? Well, so why would he, because Paul obviously knows the Greek grammar, and there is a word for plural of fruits. So why did he use the word sit in the singular as a collective singular when he could have used the plural? I think what he's trying to say is this is the Spirit's work. And among other things, it manifests itself in these things, love, joy, peace, patience. Is that all that the Spirit does? In other words, would there be other fruit of the Spirit that we can see in the New Testament? I think we'd agree there are, right? Winning of souls and faithfulness and enduring under persecution and, and all these other things that I think would be included in this fruit of the Spirit. I think what he's trying to do is say, look, the deeds of the flesh, that's one way of living according to the flesh. Here we're living according to the Spirit. So I'm not going to I'm not going to uh, make a big deal about fruit or fruits, except that if Paul says fruit, let's at least investigate why before we go on and say, well, let's just divide it out into fruits. Because the Holy Spirit's not divided in any case, right? So as the Holy Spirit, really the fullness of the Spirit is, is the Holy Spirit getting more of us. We don't get more of the Holy Spirit because He's an eternal being. But He gets more control over our lives and guidance. And it manifests itself. So, as long as you explain yourself in the context, it'll be fine. Other comments before we wrap up today? Yes? Do you think the liberal people are, when they say, be more tolerant or accepting? Do you think that has anything to do with freedom of the Spirit? So who would be the, the most tolerant person in history? Jesus. Jesus. So what does tolerance mean when it comes to Christ? Tolerance means I accept you as an image bearer of great value in the eyes of God, great worth. But I do not accept Behavior that is unbecoming of you as an image bearer, or that is uh, ruinous to you, or that sheds, makes God look bad. True tolerance is the recognition that we have differences, but we accept you as a person of value, and we can still have a relationship. The contemporary understanding of tolerance is no, you need to think at believe and respond exactly how I want you to or you're rejecting me. It's a very immature way of looking at it. Because maturity is able to distinguish behavior from thinking or certain behaviors from other behaviors and what is intrinsic and what is a reflection or a manifestation of that which is intrinsic. And they don't have any absolutes. Correct. There's no absolutes. There's no foundation for it. Except my feelings. Well, you know, my feelings are a really poor foundation to build my life upon. Right? Isn't that kind of tolerance also accepting wrong behavior? Yes, of course it is. It's more than accepting. We're supposed to endorse wrong behavior. And the person in God cannot endorse that which God says is wrong. Now, the, 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 the sinner, right, because they've been programmed to say what I do and what I am are the same, and if you don't call them the same, you hate me, 
They may not even initially feel love. Okay? But you know what? When Jesus acted that way, not everybody felt love by Jesus. Um, one time he gave teaching, false teaching, they said, Pharisees were offended by what you said. Did Jesus turn around and say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to step on your feelings. He didn't do that. He stood on the truth, right? So, we need to learn as believers that there is a big difference. This is critical to how we interact with people. There is a big difference between me giving offense and the person taking offense. Do you understand the difference? There's a huge difference between the two. As I speak the truth in love, I'm not necessarily giving offense. I tell you that person may be taking offense, however. And I can't control the behavior of someone who is acting according to emotion rather than according to the truth. But I should not be giving intentional offense with name-calling, ridicule, um, lack of empathy, things like that. In my contemporary culture, people do not allow that distinction between giving offense and taking offense. Somehow I'm supposed to do something because you're offended by what I said. What if I'm offended that you're offended? Where, where's my rights in that? If I say the truth and you react to the truth, then I'm offended that you don't like the truth. So what, what, where does this end? The emotions part, right? Where does it end? Well, I'm offended that you're offended, I'm offended. Well, yeah, I'm not on your offense because I'm offended, now you're offended, right? Okay? That's, all, that's where that logical argument goes because it's not based on truth. But if it's based on truth and love, speaking the truth in love, then that's what God does to us. Contemporary term for that is triggering. <laughs> well, I, I, frankly, the gospel requires that people be triggered a lot more. Yes. Because that triggering, then, something's wrong. They're identifying the wrong thing that's wrong, and they need to move to what the right thing is. But that triggering in and of itself could be part of the process of incoming faith in Christ. So, I'm not saying be obnoxious. Christians should never be obnoxious. Jesus was never obnoxious in his ministry. But he did tell the truth. And not everyone liked it. But those that God was working in, those that felt his seed, they saw and felt his tenderness and compassion, what did they do? They responded. Yeah. And we just have to be willing in speaking the truth to offend family, friends, co-workers, loved ones, and stand on the truth and just be willing to deal with the consequences. Let Christ always be the issue. Um, so that, that's, you know, that's what Paul did with Peter, right? Yes. I've had a lot of, a lot of some of the friends. That's okay, just don't offend them. Anybody else in there think you can offend them? And that. Yeah. And offenses, all kinds. <laughs> and it's idolatry in the end. It's, it's worship of self So we just got to recognize that that's what goes on. All right, thanks for a stimulating conversation. Let's go out and enjoy the, the blessings that are falling from the sky. And uh, I'll pray us home safely as we close. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Thank you for the opportunity to be with the fellowship of the brothers. And now, Lord, as we say thank you for 